This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello, and welcome back to Behind the Knife. I hope everybody's post-ab site recovery is going well. I'm Michael Vu, and with me is Kevin Keneary. Before I begin, let me just say that we have been slammed, in a good way, with emails from you listeners regarding our call for Behind the Knife collaborators. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me briefly explain. We are asking for applications for teams of three surgeons to become regular contributors to the podcast. You would apply to be a three-man team in charge of a specific surgical subspecialty like trauma, surgical oncology, endocrine, etc. And you'd spend the next two years making one episode every three months for a total of eight episodes. If you want to know more details on that, check out the 2021 kickoff episode, which was the last released episode, and also check out our post on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, what's today's episode? Today, we are proud to release the first episode in a short series, Plastic Surgery for the General Surgeon. We're bringing you expert plastic surgeons who will share insights and expertise in plastic surgery topics relevant to the general surgeon. Today's topic is reconstruction of the trunk. It'll be a two-part episode. This first part will be about the perineum, and in part two, we'll discuss the chest and abdomen. If you like this plastic surgery series, stick around and keep listening because we will have forthcoming episodes about burns and skin grafts, essentials of flat-based reconstruction, breast reconstruction, and more. And if you'd like a topic you'd like to recommend for this series, please leave us a tweet or email us. And thank you to all of our listeners for recommending this topic. So again, the topic for today is reconstruction of the trunk, and our guest expert is Dr. Shalesh Agarwal, Associate Surgeon in the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at Brigham and Women's in Boston. Dr. Agarwal is a medical school graduate of the University of Chicago, after which he completed a plastic surgery residency at the University of Michigan, followed by a microsurgery fellowship back at UFC. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Agarwal, and thank you so much for joining us today. Michael, Kevin, thank you for having me. This is awesome. You know, I was flipping through some of my books um, back when I was a medical student. I, I did a lot of plastic surgery rotations and, as a medical student. And, and I just realized now my Michigan Manual of Plastic Surgery uh, with uh, Benjamin Levy on, on the cover. You, you're you're a, an author of a couple of the chapters in there. Yeah, yeah. As, uh, as residents, they did a really nice job of getting us involved in, uh, in writing chapters for the book and um, kind of giving the resident perspective on things, which was nice. That book so. got me through uh, a lot of those rotations. I mean, it was invaluable. So thank you for your contribution. Thanks. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I, I still have that book uh, with me and, and still, you know, oftentimes we'll, we'll take a look at it real quickly, look at some diagrams and things. Yeah, so. yeah. I remember carrying it in my medical student lab coat, which was tough because it was already stuffed with dressings for morning rounds. So before we begin, um, can you tell us a little bit about your current practice at, uh, at the Brigham? Sure. So, um, so basically, uh, I started here about a year ago, and uh, so my practice is microvascular reconstruction of the breast, um, as well as 
general reconstruction of the lower extremity and trunk. Um, I would say that breast reconstruction is probably about 50 to 60% of my practice, um, which is nice, you know, starting out, especially uh, to be able to have uh, an area where I'm really focused in, in doing a lot of that reconstruction. And slowly, um, as I've gotten to know more um, surgeons in the Brigham community, um, my opportunity to kind of perform um, reconstruction outside the breast and chest wall area has grown um, to include abdominal wall or extremity as well. So, um, so it continues to grow and, uh, and evolve. How about your research program? You're pretty prolific based on my, my cursory search. Yeah, so I basically um, <clears throat> I started a lab here um, when I came in. And obviously, things have been uh, a bit, um, uh, you know, slow to start with uh, with COVID. But uh, actually, my laboratory is focused on studying lymphedema <clears throat> and really studying kind of cellular molecular mechanisms of lymphedema. And uh, in, in addition, I've kind of now become very interested in uh, this idea, this concept of biosensor-enabled um, gene therapies. So I'm basically I'm developing, um, you know, uh, therapeutics that are uh, peptide-based therapies that are expressed and activated during certain environmental cues. Um, and I'm using lymphedema as kind of a, a starting ground to kind of develop that technology. Oof, lymphedema. We'll have to have you on the podcast uh, another time later to, to talk about that. That's a whole other topic. I'd be happy to. Um, well, okay. So for our discussion today, I, I know that the topic trunk reconstruction is enormous. So our goal is to focus in on, on some classic plastic surgery problems that, that anyone might face. Um, we'll be discussing the perineum, the abdominal wall, and the chest. Let's start with the, the perineum and, and periperineal wounds. So when I think about um, perineal defects that, that need reconstruction, the, there are a lot of, of potential causes that run through my mind. Um, but one of the, one of the causes that sticks out most to me, um, just cause those wounds end up being so gnarly, um, are, are Fournier gangrene defects. You know, the, the extent of, um, of debridement can, can be so much. Sure. What are the other common etiologies for perineal defects that, uh, that you've come across Dr. Agarwal? So in addition to Fournier gangrene, then, um, you know, oftentimes it'll be uh, tumor resection. So, whether it's sarcoma or um, or even colorectal um, with APRs, um, those are area, those are obviously um, more planned approaches, which is different from the Fournier gangrene patient who comes in and requires urgent or emergent uh, debridements uh, versus tumor where you have more of a not elective but uh, semi-elective approach to this, which is more collaborative, and then. Um, and then, you know, some uh, some alternatives would be um, like sacral pressure sores and things like that, which aren't strictly perineal, but are um, still in that general area and make use of similar types of um, soft tissues for reconstruction. Okay. Well, let's... Uh... Let's present a, a case vignette then. Um, let's consider that we have a 50-year-old man who underwent an APR for a low rectal cancer. He's two weeks post-op, and the wound has just been kind of breaking down progressively. You know, every morning, the, the, the residents are reporting back that it's just looking kind of soupier and soupier, not very nice back there. The colorectal surgeon has returned to the OR several times to debride the wound um, and has most recently found that, it, that it's breaking down. Um, so, have you, th this sounds like a common problem that, that, that I'm sure you've seen before, right? Sure. You know, as plastic surgeons, um, certainly we see 
the ones that are developing into wounds. And, and so while we can speak to frequency, the fact is that um, many times it's going perfectly fine, you know, and so and so that's important to, for us to think about as plastic surgeons as well. Mm-hmm. When, when do you, when have you found that you're getting called about, about APR and APR wounds? Are, are, are you frequently collaborating with the, the oncologic surgeon um, in advance? Does it depend? I, I'm sure it depends at least somewhat on what the expected resection size is going to be. Um, how, what, what's your involvement like in, in these yeah, cases? So, so it depends on the resection size, but it also depends on any history of uh, perineal radiation as well, which may um, uh, increase the likelihood of breakdown, of wound breakdown. So the things, you know, that we want to be thinking about when we're thinking about kind of reconstructive approaches are, are, you know, is there a history of radiation? Um, What's the patient's nutritional status? Uh, And those those two aspects are really guiding, um, guiding forces in deciding whether reconstruction is required. The fact is that, you know, as a plastic surgeon, we're getting involved um, after the, um, the general surgeon may decide that it's something that requires us to take a look at. Um, or if, uh, ideal, in the ideal circumstance, if there's a good relationship between the plastic surgeon and the colorectal surgeons, a longstanding relationship, then, uh, then we may get in earlier. Um, in, in which case, then we're thinking about if there's been a history of radiation, what can we do preventatively to uh, reduce the likelihood of breakdown and, um, and, and, you know, really reduce the patient's stay in the hospital and get them back home. Yeah. This is a very tough wound to close as a, as a general surgeon, colorectal surgeon, and we've all kind of uh, seen these wounds and uh, definitely um, fear that, do you, do you have any thoughts or any tips in the patient that maybe doesn't have any particular risk factors, but, just uh, thoughts on how to get a successfully uh, an APR wound ex- successfully heal. If you in in the setting where there's no um, where there's no risk factors and let's say there's not a plastic surgeon involved, um, then I think the things from my perspective are so I'm a big believer in blood supply, right? So blood supply is what keeps tissue alive. It's what allows allows tissues to heal. Um, we put in a lot of sutures. We like to put in a lot of sutures to keep things together. But the fact is that there is a trade-off. Sutures hold tissue together, but they're also ischemic by nature. And so there has to be, you know, an appreciation for a layered closure while at the same time minimizing ischemia to the tissue. And so that's, that's always been my approach and my thought process. Um, so, so the things that I'm really thinking about are how do I reduce any type of um, drainage pseudo-fistulization that may occur and how do I um, improve the blood supply? So to reduce the drainage, uh, I think drains are, are important. Drains are key. And I'm a big believer anytime I'm doing substantial reconstruction, you know, a couple of drains are not a big deal. Um, obviously they're, you know, they're not a, they're not a nidus for infection and quite to the contrary, I think they help remove any type of fluid that would otherwise, um, drain out because of gravity and, and basically create an opening through an incision line. Um, I think for ischemia, thinking about patient positioning after surgery is really important. So, you know, is a patient laying down or are they sitting, um, versus having them side to side? Right. And so those are those are the types of things that I think are really important 
um, postoperatively. Um, and I think as far as intraoperatively with the closure, um, a layered closure is important, but a layered closure doesn't mean just grabbing fat and closing fat to fat because one, fat doesn't hold anything, and two, ischemic fat just becomes necrotic fat and, and basically drains. Um, so really grabbing just a little bit of, uh, if there is like any type of scarpal fascia to bring in for a layer, dermis for a layer, and then a subcuticular closure or, um, or like a horizontal mattresses, I think would be fine as well. I do like horizontal mattresses, although they're an ischemic stitch, because I think that the eversion that you get from horizontal mattress sutures, um, really does help the healing process. And that's not unique to APR defects. I think that's, you know, across the body. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What are your thoughts on uh, negative pressure incisional therapy like uh, like Provena? Is that something you're using in clinical practice? Yeah, so absolutely. So a lot of my colleagues um, uh, like to use incisional vacs uh, over here. Um, when I was in training, we didn't really use incisional vacs, and, and that could be um, that could be biased based on look on where I trained, but that could also be biased based on timing of training, right? So it's possible that over time, incisional vacs have become more in vogue. I think it's reasonable to do. I don't think it's harmful. Um, the fact is that if you put incisional vac on someone's APR defect uh, that's been that's been um, uh, closed, uh, they're less likely to probably lay down on it. They're probably less likely to put pressure on it because of the discomfort from having that on. And it probably gets rid of um, the, uh, you know, any type of drainage and kind of proactively pulls out any drainage and keeps the area relatively dry. So I think that those are, you know, that's another way of thinking about what the utility of that Provena back is. So I'm not opposed to it, I think, and I don't think it hurts. And it may help a little bit, which for challenging areas of reconstruction or closure, you know, it doesn't, it's not a bad idea to do things that aren't harmful. Um, that would help, that have the potential to help. So, so Kevin posited um, a patient with, with no risk factors. What are the yeah. sorts of risk factors that are going through your mind when you get the consult and then and you're going to go, you know, stalk the chart, ask the patient the questions, ask the nurse how things have been going? What, what, what sorts of things are, are you looking out for that are going to make your job uh, more challenging or, or that have made the, the situation as challenging as it is? Sure. So, you know, when I'm thinking about risk factors, um, I'm thinking about how those risk factors are going to affect my decision making. And so to be able to do that, um, I need to think about what my options are reconstructively, because that's going to then affect what my, how I think about those risk factors. So I'm going to jump ahead to thinking about what the reconstructive options Please are. Do. Constructive options, you know, are things from intra-abdominal uh, or from the abdominal region um, versus things from thigh-based flaps for reconstruction. Um, and those are, those are kind of two of the major areas, right? So one could think of like a VRAM or omentum versus like a gracilis or, um, 
like a gluteal flap or posterior thigh flap. And so now with that framework in mind, the things that I want to know about, has a patient had mul multiple abdominal surgeries? Have they already had abdominal radiation? Those things may affect the ability of the momentum to be used, right? Um, has the patient had multiple incisions? Do they have, um, you know, a urostomy as well as a colostomy, right? So which rec is there a rectus that's even available for VRAM flap? Um, so that's that's another um, more comorbidity or kind of patient factor that I'm thinking about. When I'm thinking about, um, in general, the need to do any type of reconstruction, I'm wondering if the patient has radiation, a history of radiation, um, because then that's going to tell me on face whether I need to actually do any type of flap or whether I should just be thinking about potentially taking the patient back, doing a local washout, uh, and then maybe doing a layered closure again over some drains. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, there, there are other risk factors like obesity and smoking, and those are important risk factors and nutrition as well that we think about. But smoking and obesity, I can't re really intervene on. Those are the same things that are going to lead to a higher risk of the APR defect opening in general. Um, and at the same time, you know, I know if I make any incision anywhere else on that patient, if they're a smoker, they have a higher risk of breaking down. But does it preclude me from doing that operation? Not necessarily at that point. I think at that point, your hand's kind of, you know, drawn on that. Um, uh, so, so those are kind of the things I think about. From a nutritional perspective, um, optimizing nutrition is critically important. At some point, you get involved maybe afterwards, and so then it's just being very aggressive postoperatively with nutrition. I just want to dive into one of those risk factors. Uh, you, many of these colorectal patients will have had radiation, whether it's for an anal tumor or a rectal tumor or something like that. How exactly, you kind of, uh, kind of led into it a little bit, but how exactly does radiation to that field impact your choice of flap or, if that's, or local wound care and things like that? Sure. So... You know, I mean, how radiation affects tissue and tissue healing is is kind of a, you know, we know that it does. The mechanism underlying it is varied, right? And it, it affects um, tissue quality from the perspective of vasculature, as well as tissue stiffness and fibrosis, which, uh, which necessarily affects the way that, um, that cells are actually able to um, grow more, release more collagen and allow the bridging process to occur. Ultimately, um, when I think about radiation, I'm thinking about getting out of the field of radiation and bringing in healthy soft tissue that hasn't been radiated for multiple reasons. One is my preference is not to make an another incision in a radiated site uh, because it would potentially lead to the same type of wound that the patient is going to have with their APR defect that's been radiated. And secondly, um, uh, getting healthy soft tissue that's not been radiated has a higher likelihood of potentially uh, bringing in nice vascularized tissue that can at least try to heal into that surrounding vas uh, radiated tissue. So getting out of the field of radiation is, is what's important to me. And defining that field of radiation is based on observation and based on kind of seeing what, is, what has the radiation done to the surrounding tissues. So in, in, a, in a patient where all the options are available, which, um, which option do you find yourself using the most or what do you think is the is there a most desirable option if it's available yeah i think so i would say i think the 
if the skin is intact, if you have skin there that from the EPR defect that can provide closure kind of superficially, then I think a gracilis is a nice option. And I think, you know, either unilateral or bilateral gracilis are nice options to bring in healthy vascularized tissue that can then um, basically fill in the subcutaneous space immediately deep to your cutaneous closure. Um, I think that if you're missing skin, then, you know, it changes a bit, obviously, and you're thinking more about uh, potentially a VRAM as an option to bring in um, skin as well as rectus muscle. Um, but I do like, I think the gracilis is a, is a great flap. Um, I don't think it's as reliable for skin. So you can get a skin paddle off the gracilis, for example, distally. Um, but I don't think that skin pedal is as reliable and, and most people don't think it's that reliable. And what you, the last thing you want to do is put a patient through a big operation, uh, and then have, you know, an unreliable skin paddle where you need it. So, so that kind of, that kind of defines kind of my breakdown. Can you walk us through very briefly the steps of, of your gracilis, um, of your gracilis flap? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So for the gracilis flap, um, you know, positioning is everything and patient positioning. Um, if you can have the patient in lithotomy, that's ideal. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, drawing that line basically from, uh, the pubic symphysis to the, um, to the medial knee, medial patella kind of gives you an axis, um, for the gracilis flap. And oftentimes, you know, the, the things to keep it, to remember about the gracilis are that it's, it's fairly superficial and it's, it falls back posteriorly. So it's posterior to that axis and it's fairly superficial. So you make that incision, you basically try to make an incision about one to two centimeters posterior to that axis that I just described. And you should, one should encounter the um, gracilis fairly quickly through the subcutaneous tissue. And it tends to be a fairly isolated muscle in the sense that, um, you know, you're looking at the fiber directionality. You should be able to get around it very easily. And if it's coalescing with other, with other muscles in the thigh region, then most likely it's not gracilis. Um, and, uh, and then it could be, you know, one of your um, uh, medial uh, uh, adductors. So you really want to be cautious with that um, because that's going to be um, an op opportunity to create injury if you're not around the gracilis itself. Uh, and then, you know, you basically are dissecting down distally, transect it, um, and, then, uh, and then flip it um, proximally. The other option is to, so instead of making a complete incision uh, along that uh, axis, you can also just make your incision distally along the medial knee, find your insertion of the gracilis, and transect it and then just subcutaneously dissect it without making a long incision. The way that I've always done is make the long medial incision and actually just visualize the whole thing because it is easy to, to get into the wrong point. One of the other options I was just curious to hear your thoughts on and in, in vascular we use a mental flaps a lot um, yes. to cover grafts and different things. Can you just tell me sure. a little bit how any tips from the plastic surgeons on, on how to best uh, use an ornamental flap successfully? Yeah, so the omentum is a great option for patients who haven't had multiple, obviously, intra-abdominal operations and haven't had intra-abdominal radiation. So, so it really depends on what the patient's previous history is. 
And I think that's kind of first and foremost. The, the momentum, if they've been, if they haven't had a previous operation, um, then it's a fairly nice, big, you know, piece of soft tissue that you just release and let it drop down. I think that in those situations, um, you know, in plastic surgery now, uh, that you know, we primarily are coming through. A lot of us come through an integrated pathway, and so we have a little bit less. Um, experience with the omental flap through our training. And I think that collaborating with the general surgery team to, um, to isolate the omentum uh, off the gastropoploic vessel, off the right up uh, gastropoploic is important. And so, and then, you know, transecting and ligating your uh, gastric vessels as they come off and making sure that you're not um, causing ischemia to the, to the stomach as well, which is, a, which is a feared complication of that flap. Um, but I think in that situation, you know, collaborating with the general surgery team is critically important. Making sure it's a virgin abdomen, um, is, is important as well. And then that soft tissue will just fall right down, which is nice. Um, but I think it's a, I think it's a great option again, if you're not looking for skin. So one last question on this topic before we move on. Sacral pressure ulcers, as you mentioned earlier, are not really perineal wounds, but they are in that general location. And some of the reconstructive options and mindset are similar. How does your approach to these wounds compare and contrast to the approach to the perineal wounds that we have been discussing? Sure. So, I mean, I think that um, for the sacral pressure defect um, or any pressure ulcer, it's really critically important to, to optimize the patient from a social perspective and from a nutrition perspective. Those are things that you one has a lot of time to do, right? So whereas APR is for tumor, a sacral pressure sore, this patient may have had for a very long time. And so we have time to optimize their nutrition, optimize their um, social situation so they're getting their turns appropriately, so they have appropriate care at home, um, making sure the patient is optimized after reconstruction so that they aren't going to be in a position where we've performed a major reconstruction and then they're lying supine on that, um, on that uh, reconstructed site for a prolonged period of time, right? So those are all things that, that are very important, you know, smoking history. So whereas a patient with an APR defect you know, if they're a smoker, they're a smoker. That's what it is. But with a patient who has a pressure sore, you know, stopping smoking and nicotine use altogether, we have, I guess one could say we have the luxury of time to try to, to get that to stop before we move forward with any type of reconstruction. So I think that's, that's what it's all about is the difference in the sense of urgency. Um, and that's not to say it's not important to be able to reconstruct these. It, it very much is. But it's the onus is on us then to optimize that patient before putting them down that path. The flaps are pretty much similar. I mean, obviously, omentum, not really an option. Gracilis, probably not an option to get all the way back there to the sacrum, uh, as opposed to like a, a you know, gluteal uh, rotation flap or a VY advancement flap, things like that. Awesome. Awesome. And we have a lot of medical students and interns who, who listen to the podcast. So because it'll always come up on a test, just trying to remind myself the, you know, the, the most common areas specifically for a pressure injury back there come from the ischial, um, the, 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 uh, the ischial tuberosity, the trochanters and the sacrum. Is that right? Yeah. So, so let me ask you, Michael, which, what positioning has the highest likelihood of causing a sacral pressure ulcer? 
would that be like seated in a, or no, 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 lying down, lying down versus seated would be the ischial uh, tuberosities. Yeah, exactly. So supine is um, sacral, um, you know, the, the trochanes are from side to side, obviously um, heels from having a patient who's too tall for their bed and they have the bed posts and the, and the, you know, the, the, the landing at the end of the bed and their, their heels are just resting on that and they can develop pressure sores there as well. From a reconstructive perspective, you know, always thinking about making sure that you're not going to lead to another pressure sore in the patient you've reconstructed. So if you are doing an ischial pressure sore um, reconstruction, making sure that, you know, offloading, even regardless of where it is, but making sure that when they're offloading, that they're not going to create a pressure sore where you're offloading onto, right? Mm-hmm. So those patients have now one less pl- positioning that's available to them. Uh, and, and so, you know, I've had patients who we've done like a sacral pressure sore and now they, they never lay prone and now they have to lay prone. So it, talking to them about that beforehand is important because Otherwise, they'll get a lot of pushback from the patient because, you know, they've never laid prone before in a long time and and it's not something you can tolerate. So those are all things to think about. All right, listeners, that was the first half of our recording with Dr. Agarwal. Sorry for the abrupt stop, but we just had too good a time talking with him and this episode was getting a little long. had to split it in two. So stick around for next week's uh, part two of this episode where we continue discussing reconstruction of the trunk. You'll definitely want to hear Dr. Agarwal's insights on reconstructing abdominal as well as chest wall defects. Until then, remember that we are currently requesting all surgical educators interested in joining us on the Behind the Knife team to go to our Twitter and Facebook and see the details for applying for one of those two-year positions on the podcast. And also, please tweet us if you have any further ideas for what plastic surgery topics you'd like our experts to cover, or any topics at all, really. But all right, see you all next week. Until next time, dominate the day.